You're listening to On The Verge, a podcast about solving the security risks of the 21st century, produced by the Council on Strategic Risks. Tune in for expert interviews about some of today's most pressing existential problems, including climate change, global pandemics, bioweapons, and nuclear proliferation. We'll discuss some of the major challenges and outline potential solutions for preventing worst-case scenarios. At the Council on Strategic Risks, we believe that we are on the verge of a better tomorrow. Hello, everyone. My name is Evan Bernard, and I'm a research fellow with the Center for Climate and Security at the Council on Strategic Risks. In this episode, you will hear a conversation between Captain Steve Brock and myself about climate security in the 2021 World Climate and Security Report by the International Military Council on Climate and Security. This is the second in a series of discussions we will be having on the topic of climate change, national security, and the World Climate and Security Report. We begin with a discussion of climate security prioritization in military contexts and examine the significance of addressing climate threats to national security around the world. If you are interested in reading more about this topic, I encourage you to read the International Military Council on Climate and Security's 2021 World Climate Security Report. Let's go to the interview. Today, I have the honor of interviewing retired Captain Steve Brock. Captain Steve Brock is a senior advisor with the Council on Strategic Risks and the Center for Climate and Security and chief of staff to the chair and secretary general of the International Military Council on Climate and Security. Prior to joining CSR, Captain Steve Brock served in a variety of capacities within the U.S. Department of Defense in the White House, including in the office of the U.S. Chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff, at the White House Council on Environmental Quality, and at the National Security Council. Prior to working in the White House, Steve served in a number of senior capacities in the U.S. military. He also served as advisor to the U.S. Mission to the United Nations. The International Military Council on Climate and Security, or IMCCS, is releasing its 2021 World Climate and Security Report. This report has both a global and regional perspective. The authors, Steve included, investigate global trends and detailed case studies to demonstrate the current situation and prescient conditions. Steve Brock, welcome to On the Verge. Thank you so much, Evan. It's a pleasure to be here. Now, Steve, you served in the U.S. Navy in various capacities throughout your military career. From your experience in the U.S. Navy, why is it worth incorporating climate risks into military leadership planning? You know, when I think about the, uh, my, my career in the U.S. Navy, for most of my career, climate and climate security was never mentioned. But over the last decade, slowly but surely, it's come into the consciousness more and more for military planners. And one of the big drivers in the Navy, for that matter, is the changing Arctic. When you think about what the U.S. Navy has always existed for, and that is to, you know, to maintain freedom of navigation on the high seas, to ensure the free um, flow of commerce around the globe, and to protect the U.S. Uh, maritime interest. For the first time in, in many, many decades, the U.S. Navy will be challenged to do that in the Arctic environment. As the ice melts up there, 
And there is greater and greater commerce that flows on a much more direct route from Western Europe to Northeast Asia and the West Coast of the United States. And also as there is a traditional competition for accessible resources as the ice melts, the Navy will have a very, very important presence up there, will require a very important presence up there. And that requires a whole different set of ships, aircraft, sensors, basing of a structure that we currently don't have. And so that's describing climate planning from a traditional perspective, something that the Navy has done since the Revolutionary War in maintaining the free flow of commerce and protecting U.S. maritime interests. But on the other hand, that melting ice is also going to be creating unforeseen tipping point types of consequences for sea level rise. That's been something that the Navy has never had to deal with or the U.S. defense establishment for that matter. How do we plan for procure and acquire the kind of systems that we're going to need, the kind of military hardware that we're going to need that takes years and years of planning and a decade at least to field and then is usually in service for 40 to 50 years. If you can imagine how hard that is in normal circumstances to field a Navy that's going to be effective and secure the nation 30, 40 years from now, but then imagine that in a world that we can't even envision. From a naval intelligence perspective, as a former naval intelligence officer, there are a whole host of considerations for incorporating climate security into that planning process. Intelligence should drive planning, intelligence should drive operations, and we have not focused our collection or analytical priorities on climate or climate slash environmental data in a way that we need to, to try to get a handle on what needs to be done going forward. So one of the recommendations also that I would make is that those involved not only in military intelligence, but in the intelligence community writ large, think about what we need to do from a prioritization standpoint, from an acquisition of intelligence systems that are optimized to collect and analyze that kind of data, and from a manpower perspective on building up the kind of information and situational awareness we need to power that planning process. Thank you very much. We are entering some uncharted waters in terms of how we are approaching military readiness. And I think that the IMCCS 2021 World Climate Security Report gives guidance towards what we can expect. Now, 2021 is also a very important year for high-level climate diplomacy. We've already had a number of high-level climate summits, and we will have a number of other high-level climate summits throughout the rest of the year, including the COP26 conference in November. What are the key takeaways from this report? And if there is one thing you want policymakers to learn from the report, what would it be? The World Climate Security Report 2021 is the second report. And first, I'd like to emphasize that it is a report not written from a U.S. perspective. It's actually written from a global perspective with some amazing partners that are part of the IMCCS consortium. So it truly has a global perspective and, and global input. And it follows on the inaugural World Climate Security Report that was presented at the Munich Security Conference in February of 2020. So I, I urge all that, uh, that have learned of this for the first time to also refer to the 2020 report, which is a very, very strong foundation for this report. And this report builds on that report. The, the key takeaways for the 2020 run report, I think, are threefold. The first is that data can be a very powerful tool in developing sophisticated and, and quite useful 
risk methodologies for decision makers. But the key to making those uh, effective is having sufficient data. And that data needs to not only be timely, but it also needs to be more comprehensive. We learned that there's areas of the world that have timely and comprehensive data, and there's areas that aren't. And without that kind of record keeping uh, within the global community, it'll be difficult to create the kind of tools that we know are possible and are very effective. And so I would encourage policymakers to, to take a look at these tools to help them determine risk, assess risk, and then build policy off of that. But also look at what those methodologies are built upon, what they run on, and then put practices in place to help feed those with the kind of data and the kind of timely data that we need. The second thing I'd say is that we looked at best practices, and I like to refer to that section as the practices section, because in order to have best practices, you need to have a pretty substantial set of practices that are in play. There actually are very few uh, practices currently in play around the world from a climate and security perspective, either from looking at militaries or looking at security actors, um, on the development side, the aid side, NGO side. So we need to actually start getting at this problem and start doing more things and trying more things so that we can really have a clearer assessment of what the best of breed practices are. I think what the report provides is a pretty comprehensive set of what we currently could find with enough detail to, uh, to present it. And the main takeaway from all of that is we need more being done to actually make recommendations in the future on what the most effective and efficient and ultimately successful practices will be from a climate security perspective. The third thing I would say on the key takeaways is the need for collective and what I'd call universal action. You know, a lot of the climate diplomacy up to this point has been from a, a nation state perspective. It's been about what various nation states are willing to do as far as, for instance, reducing their emissions or carrying out other climate beneficial agreements that are negotiated in a multilateral and sometimes bilateral way. But what is very immature and what needs greater development are some universal standards for global action on things that we haven't even touched upon. You know, and I'll just list a couple. For instance, Geoengineering. You know, geoengineering is human intervention into Earth's natural systems to either reflect solar radiation back to cool the planet or to pull greenhouse gases out of the atmosphere to cool the planet using that method. Those can, of course, have unintended consequences. They can have global consequences. When you're operating the oceans or the stratosphere, uh, there are sovereignty concerns. There is no current global mechanism, whether through the UN or, or otherwise, to address what is appropriate, what is not appropriate, what sort of the regulatory framework is for assessing the cost-risk analysis, non-state actors, states acting on their own. There's a whole spectrum of what you could imagine as serious global security implications from geoengineering that is not done through, through collective consensus and the conflicts that could arise from that. Another example is ECOCIDE. For instance, ECOCIDE is not part of the ICC, but there have, charges have been submitted by indigenous leaders in Brazil about the destruction of the environment and the, uh, and the implications that has for the global community. And, and how the global community relies on various parts of the world as a 
as a sink or as a means of mitigating climate change. If nation states or certain actors purposely go about harming the collective good on climate security issues, that's something that the international community um, you know, can pursue from an international law perspective. UNCLOS is another. If small outlying atolls are submerged for greater periods of the year, various nation states could lose hundreds of thousands of square miles of their exclusive economic zones. It also has implications for territorial waters. That is a whole area that needs to be addressed as far as international maritime law. We've all heard of the, the human rights issues with climate refugees. If a nation state ceases to be inhabitable, what are the rights of those individuals to settle elsewhere in the world? That's something that, that also needs to be addressed on a global scale. I think that's just a sort of a set of examples of collective universal action that architecture needs to be built. And we need to move beyond the nation state construct to the collective global action construct to address a lot of these issues that are unprecedented and no, no political borders. To the listeners, I would also strongly recommend reading the 2020 World Climate Security Report as well as the 2021 World Climate Security Report. Suppose the leaders now have the appropriate tools and even the incentives and recommendations you mentioned. Uh, You described a number of universal standards. Why should world leaders, such as members of the G20, ASEAN, why should they care about climate security during this decade? The G20 construct that you raise, you know, that is, um, that's an economic construct, right? Those are the world's 20 biggest economies. And I think that's a really important point because economic interests, you know, are often a significant component of national interest and often are the key part of the calculus for national security decision-making and even one of the many sort of root causes of conflict. So when I think about economic considerations, I think about not only the fact that climate change is going to be having an effect on our physical world from a water and food security standpoint, for example, but also when you think about the transition from a fossil fuel economy to a climate economy, very little consideration has been given to to the displacement or the instability that will come from those economies that are going through those changes, the parts of the world that are going through those changes, the parts of the world that we used to rely on for those resources that may not be as critical as they once were, the natural resources that we need for the new climate economy from all the rare earth materials, etc., to the competitive edge that certain countries may not even realize that they have right now. We've often talked about all of the trends indicate the Asia century as far as economic power and prosperity. But what often wasn't included in in that discussion was climate change. Will Asia be the center of gravity in the global economy and have the preponderance of global power if you add climate into that calculus. Many of Asia's most economically prosperous and dynamic urban areas are in coastal areas or on some of the world's great rivers that are probably going to be facing some extreme disruptions 
to their ability to continue to lead economically. Capital markets have yet to incorporate climate into all of the complex factors that drive the global economy from a finance and investment perspective. Insurance markets have yet to fully or even partially incorporate climate risks into those parts of the business cycle that, that we're accustomed to and that we've really refined over the past hundred years or so. So I think of the G20 and, you know, and nation states having a, a profound interest in the next decade of climate, perhaps not from all of the physical aspects that we anticipate coming in the decades to come, but from the rapidly changing economy as we switch to a climate-focused economy in all of its aspects and away from you know the economy that we've had for at least the last 60 years. And even going further than that, going back to earlier parts of industrialization across the world, if we truly are going to be meeting the emissions commitments, um, renewable energy commitments, and the other commitments that we're making at summits currently, those the implications of that will start manifesting themselves before 2031. You make a lot of great points about economic, environmental, and even social resilience in terms of resource scarcity, climate change, and other forms of resilience. What steps would you suggest that world leaders, policymakers, and military leaders take in the near term to address the multitude of climate change implications around the world? I think that the first step is cultural, because when you say address the multitude of climate security consequences around the world, we don't even know what those are yet. We have an idea of what some of them are, but there's far more that we aren't aware of yet than there are those that we are. And so what I've learned is that climate security is not the realm of only people that are working in it or that have that assigned to them in their portfolio. It's an all hands on deck requirement for everyone. And I'll give you some examples. If we're looking at it from a military perspective or from a defense establishment perspective, up until this point, for those militaries that have even addressed it at all, it has been assigned to an office. Um, it's been assigned to someone with their task to look into it, but it hasn't penetrated the rest of the enterprise in a way that is absolutely essential for these things to happen. Thousands and thousands of decisions go into maintaining national security. Thousands of decisions go into running a military, man training and equipping it, conducting those operations. Those decisions are made um, across a wide spectrum from those that are in the acquisition field, the operations field, the intelligence field, human resources, plans and policy. Up to this point, many, many decisions have been made without taking climate into consideration. In order to really get a handle on this, we need, we need to assess every decision we make in the context of, is there a climate security implication? Is there something that we haven't thought of before? We are fielding billion dollar plus national security programs that thousands of considerations go into. But there are examples of those kinds of programs that of the thousands of things that were considered, basic things like sea level rise weren't considered. And so we have multi-billion dollar radars on atolls in the Pacific that are now at threat from sea level rise because it wasn't in the culture to think of those considerations when those decisions were being made. And even at the broader foreign policy and national security making level, almost every single national security decision has some sort of climate component to it if you just step back and take a moment to think about it. But the vast majority are made without considering climate. And I'd also like to say that there are examples where it, it isn't a matter of climate making a traditional security challenge more difficult there's also 
opportunities for climate and cooperation on climate security to solve long intractable conflicts. For instance, the Colombian peace accords, you know, the decades long civil war in Colombia had climate security, had, um, you know, sustainability for the first time actually in, in history as core components of that peace treaty. And that's because the government in Bogota recognized that they could bring in very capable stakeholders with very vested interests, namely the Northern Europeans, who had invested billions of dollars in carbon offsets in the uh, Amazon rainforest in Colombia. And they realized that if when the FARC laid down their arms and no longer operated and, and kept those areas off limits from traditional slash and burn agriculture and economic exploitation, that climate asset would be a tremendous risk. The Northern Europeans came in, helped underwrite the peace process, helped negotiate the peace process, and helped set up a system, for instance, a carbon tax is one of the components, to pay for FARC reintegration and FARC disarmament. And so that's just one example and of all the folks that have worked on the conflict in Colombia from a national security perspective in the decades preceding and all of the money spent on that, a grand bargain with new stakeholders from a climate perspective probably wasn't considered as early as it should have. And if you take that example and you apply it to all sorts of other national security considerations or intractable conflicts around the world that seemingly don't have a climate component to them, we might find similar breakthroughs with new stakeholders that improve the climate security standing and help solve some things we've been trying to find solutions for. Great. Thank you so much. Do you have any final thoughts you would like to add for the listeners? We are facing an existential threat, a 21st century threat, but also a threat that we've never had to face before in recorded human history. And so I think a lot of times that gets lost. And there are many, many things that from a climate security perspective, we need to absolutely do to continue to do the missions that are required of us from a traditional sense. All of those steps need to be taken. They're essential, but they're not sufficient. And that's the real challenge here. When we think about increasing instability, increasing conflict, the need for more resources to be put towards humanitarian assistance and disaster response. When you think about the traditional challenges that we've always faced from competition from great powers or emerging powers, all of that needs to continue. But on top of that, we need to address something that we've never had to address before from a security perspective. That is the crux, I think, of the conversation that we've just had. It's the reason that we've done the second World Climate Security Report is all in an effort to try to help get a handle on not only meeting the traditional security requirements that all of the, our partners around the world require, but meeting the unprecedented security challenge that we collectively as a global community, as a human race, are going to be facing. Well, Steve, thank you very much. I greatly enjoyed this insightful discussion. I look forward to future discussions. Thank you for joining the show. Evan, thanks so much for having me. I really appreciate it and look forward to speaking again. Thank you for listening to On The Verge. If you enjoyed the show, please take a moment to leave us a review. For more information on the work of the Council on Strategic Risks, please visit us at councilonstrategicrisk.org or you can follow us on Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, or LinkedIn.